0: the was a total of 35 years that I was in, that I was in business. Like I said, I started in 1985, uh, as a part time. And then in 1992, I began to do full time and I stayed in that same location until, uh, the unfortunate closing, uh, March 12th of uh, 2020.
1: Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And that was Isaac Thomas, who closed the doors of his Taekwondo studio in Atlanta in mid-March and will not be reopening them. More than 3 million small businesses have shut in the US since February. The global tally must run into the tens of millions. In a little while, I'll be asking Bloomberg Chief Economist Tom Orlick how much of the economic damage we've seen from COVID-19 is likely to be quickly reversed. He has some new research suggesting, depressingly, that nearly one in three of the jobs lost in the US due to the crisis may not be coming back. But first, we're going to hear more about Isaac Thomas because his experience also speaks to the particularly high price that African-Americans have paid for COVID-19 in Atlanta and across the US. The National Bureau of Economic Research reckons the number of black entrepreneurs in America fell by 41% between February and April. That's more than twice the decline in the number of white-owned businesses. US economy reporter in Atlanta, Mike Sasso, has dug deeper into this story, and he's with me now. Mike, listeners will remember we last spoke to you back in April, when the governor of Georgia was reopening the economy well ahead of everyone else. I'd like to hear how that's going, but first, tell me about the story you wrote with your colleague Sejal Kishan. What did you find out?
2: Well, uh, yeah, African-American businesses have been really hit hard by the the COVID-19 pandemic to a, a much greater extent than white uh, and, and frankly, other uh, several other ethnic groups. African-American-owned businesses, about 41% or more than 4 in 10, have closed at least temporarily through the pandemic. That's more than double the rate of white-owned businesses. Uh, about 17% of all white-owned businesses have shut at least temporarily during the pandemic. Uh, and some uh, even, even more so than in other hard-hit groups like uh, immigrant and Hispanic-owned businesses are each around 30 or 35%.
1: And the numbers involved here are enormous. I mean, we're talking about 440,000 black small businesses closing between February and April. Um, we know that a lot of African-American-owned businesses, uh, entrepreneurs find it harder. But what are the factors that researchers are looking at when they try and think why so many black-owned businesses have gone gone bust? I mean, it is partly about the sectors they're in, I guess.
2: Yeah, there's a there's a range of of uh, ideas about this. One, they have been hit by this pandemic, partly because, you know, African-Americans in general have been hit hard by the pandemic, uh, you know, just health wise, only about 32 or 35 percent of the population of Atlanta is African-American, which is higher than the nation at large, but still a minority of of Atlanta's population. And yet 80% of the hospitalized patients in the Atlanta area were African-American. So a huge uh, disproportionate number of them are being hit by uh, health wise. Uh, And then there are longer standing issues with with financing of their businesses. Um, They have had a historically harder time getting loans uh, even recently, only about 29 or 30 percent of African-American businesses have been able to get a bank loan. Uh, that's uh, meanwhile, white owned businesses are, are closer to about two thirds uh, able to tap into bank credit. So that's a major issue. Uh, and then there are, you know, they, they do tend to be in industries that are getting hit harder by this. Uh, basically, the best small business to be in in America right now is agriculture. Uh, Unfortunately, African-Americans are are not, you know, significantly in agriculture in in any great numbers. They are in in what they call this broad category called personal services. So think of uh, dry cleaners and hair salons and whatnot. And those are among the most hardest hit businesses. So there are a a a lot of factors, both historic and more recent, uh, contributing to this.
1: Well, I know you looked at a lot of research, but you also talked to quite a few local uh, African-American business owners, including I- Isaac Thomas. Let's hear a bit more now.
0: I was still, always been fascinated with this martial art. So I began to uh, to study off and on, and then I got very serious about it in 1979. And when I obtained my black belt, I always wanted to be a teacher. That's how Atlanta Taekwondo uh, started. Back in 1985, what happened starting? Take me back to early or mid March. On March 14th, I said, "Told my wife, I said, I know my body. Something's wrong." So I drove myself to the Veterans Administration Hospital on Claremont Road, and that's when they determined that I had a fever. Uh, They took X-rays, blood work, tested me for the. COVID-19, and I was diagnosed positive March 4th. Uh, I got the results on March 18th. So that was, I guess, the beginning of the end. My wife herself, she was in the hospital for 18 days on a ventilator for 12. And that was a very trying time there. So, But the, the governor and also the, 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 the mayor of Atlanta the mayor of East Point, they just shut everything down. So that, that caused me not to be able to make any income whatsoever from, from my uh, place of business. So that was, again, like I said, that was the beginning of my end.
1: So we heard there he, Isaac was one of those business owners that got sick, and that was part of the reason he couldn't keep up the business, and his wife did as well.
2: Yeah, Isaac uh, is, is really a really compelling case, Uh he, he has uh, started his Taekwondo studio in, in a predominantly African-American area of Atlanta 35 years ago. Uh, however, he admitted it has been a labor of love more so than a big money maker for him. He never was able to get much in terms of bank loans. He described how uh, on occasion banks and other lenders would come to him offering money, but it was at times when he didn't need it. And at those periods when he did need it, Uh, they were not willing to come forward with money. Uh, And then you take that historic trouble getting credit and and compound it with his own illness. And it just didn't make any sense uh, any longer to Isaac to keep going. He didn't have the money. Financing was a struggle. And there were challenges to to business. I mean, uh, social distancing requirements put on by local governments. How, you know, he was not allowed to have more than 10 people in his studio at any time. How do you operate a business, a, a Taekwondo studio where you need to have a number of you know a certain number of clients? How do you do that when you have to limit it to 10 people? And,
1: and we did hear, I mean partly because of that experience with uh, getting credit when he really needed it in the past, uh, he hadn't even tried to get access to the government loan schemes since the pandemic struck because he didn't want to get into more debt and I guess he wasn't even sure he was going to get it and that is something else that was brought out in your story that there was quite uh, surveys of of black and Hispanic business owners Uh, most of them were saying they weren't able to get or they hadn't yet been able to get um, assistance from the government and you did ask him though about what he thought about the future so maybe let's just hear a little bit about that and then I want to hear from you what you think things are like on the ground in Atlanta
2: do you think that they will be able to rebound quickly when maybe this virus gets under control, or do you you foresee a a longer, more difficult comeback?
0: In most instances, it's probably going to be longer because uh, we're probably not going to be able to get the amount of financing or the amount of loan that we really need. And it's understandable somewhat because, like I say, They couldn't extend to me this uh, large uh, amount of loan when I'm not bringing in that kind of money. So I understand the economics. So that's why I think that we're going to be a little bit behind unless you got some. Hopefully you got those businesses out there who are making good money and they can get these loans and get themselves back on their feet. And I really applaud them, the ones who are hanging in there, to make it through.
2: And what's in your future?
0: Well, it's, it's, it's really uncertain right now. Uh, I have many of my students want me to, uh, I, I use the term like from the movie, the Blues Brothers, they want me to get the band back together. Right. And, then, uh, and I've talked to them, and I may start doing something on a smaller scale, but the, the most important thing right now is my family, like I said, my wife. I may do it on a smaller scale, but probably not to the scale that I was doing before.
1: Mike, the last time we spoke, you had braved the Waffle House uh, when the Georgian governor had opened up uh, restaurants, bars, I think it was tattoo parlors, nail salons, um, way ahead of uh, expert advice. How how is that going? Are things getting back to normal? Have you seen... um, covid cases continuing to rise as i know you have in in some states in the us
2: yeah uh you're right georgia was the first american state to open in any meaningful way uh back you know it was uh, late late april uh i will say it's it's fairly ba- you know seems to feel like getting back to normal here there's a, a restaurant booking service called open table where you go and you book uh, tables in advance at restaurants, particularly in the South, uh, bookings are, are increasing at, uh, at restaurants, uh, particularly in Florida. I was just looking about 55 uh, percent of uh, the Florida restaurants rather have picked up about 55 percent of their previous business. So they're only down about 45 percent.
1: I guess I have to ask you, You, we, uh, I wanted to know whether your favorite restaurant had opened yet last time and it hadn't opened. Have you been able to go to your, what was it, the Korean restaurant that you talked about? Yeah,
2: you know, honestly, it's a good question. I haven't been by there. I have a little seven, seven-year-old daughter who loves kind of schlocky uh, chain restaurants. There's uh, uh, one called Chili's here in America and Applebee's, and while they're not my favorite uh, she 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 loves the chains, and so we're kind of dominated by what my uh, what my seven year old wants. And Korean sure. tacos are not yet her favorite.
1: <laughs> I can just imagine sitting in lockdown, craving your first meal, and then the first meal is at Chili's. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Thank you very much, Mike Sasso. Sure thing. So we touched there on a massive question hanging over not only business owners like Isaac Thomas, but governments around the world, well, everyone really, as they try to look to the future. What we all want to know is how many of the jobs and businesses we've lost in the past few months will automatically come back as lockdowns are eased, and how many might be gone for good, or at least a long time. Well, our chief economist, Tom Orlick, great friend of Stephanomics, just published some work on this with two colleagues, Bjorn von Roy and Scott Johnson. Tom, welcome back. I know this was quite a sophisticated model, but can you briefly explain the approach you took and what some of the key conclusions were?
3: Great to be back, Stephanie. Um, So the the key question uh, in terms of the unemployment impact of the COVID-19 recession is how much of this is just a supply and demand shock? jobs that are gone but which will come back quite quickly once the lockdown ends and stimulus starts hitting the economy Um, and what share of them represent what economists call a reallocation shock Uh, so a shock that comes because consumers are going to change their behavior they're not going to go back to restaurants they're not going to go back to nightclubs they're not going to go on and fly on airlines and those jobs which are the result of the reallocation shock The assumption is, well, they might be gone for good or at least gone for a protracted period of time. So what we did was we looked at flows in and out of the U.S. labor market uh, of the U.S. labor market on a a sector basis. Um, And what we did was we said, okay, if a particular sector has uh, a lot of job separations, a lot of people getting kicked out of work, but not a lot of vacancies, that's a supply and demand shock. And those jobs could come back pretty quickly once the lockdown ends. But if a sector has a lot of job separations but also a lot of vacancies then that's evidence that there's a reallocation shock underway and those jobs are going to take longer to come back because people are going to need training, they're going to need to build connections with new firms, they might need to move around the country before they find uh, employment. So it's a, it's a compelling model, uh, but really it's only a model, so we have to take the results um, with a grain of salt. Um, but what they're suggesting is that actually we're facing a pretty significant reallocation shock. Around 30% of the jobs in the US, which have been lost uh, between February and May, are the result of reallocation. And what that suggests is we're going to see the beginning of a V-shaped recovery in the labor market. A lot of jobs are going to come back quite quickly but for around 30% of the newly unemployed um there's going to be a long slog back to uh, back to employment
1: just just so we have a way of thinking about this if you were in the in the retail or restaurant industry for example if you're getting rid of a lot of waiters because you think it's going to be quite a long time before you can have people back in the restaurants but you have Increased your online business and your delivery business. Would that would that kind of sharp, Is that the kind of reallocation shock? Are we talking about? Or are we talking about something more lasting than that?
3: Right. So yeah, an intuitive way of thinking about it would be the Amazon effect. We've got a uh, a local grocery store uh, that used to have a bunch of staff dealing face to face with customers who would come in to buy their vegetables and their milk and so on, uh, but because of COVID. People have decided, you know what? I want to minimize my contagion risks. I don't want to go to the grocery store. So I'm going to switch my grocery purchases from the grocery store to uh, Amazon, Amazon Prime, and I'm going to get everything delivered. So we see some jobs disappearing in that local grocery store. We see some jobs being created in the Amazon warehouse and the delivery company. That's the reallocation shock. Now, that anecdote and the one which you sort of shared about the the restaurant switching to online, what that suggests is that the reallocation happens in a sense in a seamless way, right? So person A walks out of a job uh, on day one and into another job, maybe with the same company uh, in day two. The trouble is that reallocation rarely happens in such a smooth way. Uh, We see businesses dying, we see other businesses growing and other businesses being created. We see people moving from companies and from between sectors and between locations. Uh, But these things take a considerable period of time. Most people don't stop being a waiter on day one and start being a delivery person on day two. That transition takes weeks, months, sometimes even longer.
1: What are the most vulnerable sectors? If we, I mean, we've already mentioned retail. Is that where the reallocation looks like it's taken place, retail, hospitality, or is it broader than that?
3: Um, we actually took two approaches to looking at this question. Uh, the first one I, I just described, that's where we look at flows in and out of the labour market. Uh, the second one, uh, and this was the work uh, pursued by Scott Johnson, is where we looked at the dispersion of equity market returns. And the idea there is that if you see equity market investors making a big bet on profits in one sector, uh, but getting really cautious or pessimistic on profits in another sector, then that's an early signal that there's gonna be a reallocation taking place. Um, So we use both approaches to look at the size of the reallocation shock and where the reallocation shock is gonna be biggest. And yes, uh, retail shows up big in in both approaches. Uh, Hospitality shows up big in both approaches. Um, But there's also sectors like oil and gas, for example, which are not so directly related to the COVID shock. They're not gonna be affected by people's preference for face-to-face contact or not. But because the COVID shock has hammered oil prices, that is also gonna lead to a significant reallocation within the oil and gas sector. There's going to be some high-cost producers that go out of business. There's going to be some low-cost producers that start doing more. Um, and of course, when you're thinking about a sector like that, the reallocation between firms, the cost to workers of losing their job and finding another one, um, starts to look much higher than in that kind of intuitive example about the shift from the waiter to the delivery person, where you know one might hope that that happened more quickly.
1: Tom, you said at the start, we should take the results of this with a pinch of salt. It's just an economic model. I guess some people would say what you're calling a reallocation shock is a behavioural change by consumers that could disappear if we have a vaccine, if we have an end to this crisis sooner than people are expecting. And that's true, right? There is a lot of uncertainty here.
3: Absolutely, Stephanie. And I I think I I flag a few things. Um, So the first is, and this is what you just mentioned, if this all comes back under control really quickly, um, and it turns out people have short memories, and they decide this was a one-off, and their behavior essentially goes back to normal, then the reallocation shock could well be significantly smaller than our model suggests. But... Uh, I, I'd point to a couple of cautions before before jumping to that optimistic um, conclusion. So the first one is, actually, if we look at what's happening with the disease case count around the world, that doesn't seem to be how things are playing out. Um, and if we look at how people behave in countries like Sweden and Korea, um, which uh, don't have the same tight restrictions in place, um, what we see is that, actually, even when lockdowns ease, fear of contagion continues to be a factor that changes behavior. Uh, and the second thing is, OK, let's say we have an optimistic scenario where this things, co- things come under control and the disease stops being an issue in, in three months or in six months' time. Well, there's a lot of businesses that, sadly, are just not going to make it that distance. So even if the disease gets taken out of the equation, we're still going to have reallocation uh, because of what uh, economists call the the sort of the Matthew effect. To him that hath uh, shall be given, to him that hath not shall be taken away. Um, And we're seeing that playing out really viciously in this COVID shock. Lots of small bricks and mortar businesses going under, lots of big e-commerce platforms grabbing more market share. And what that suggests to me is that even when the disease comes under control, there's still going to be some significant reallocation uh, that's taken place
1: clearly, governments can't hope for the best, even if there is a possibility that some of this will turn out to be overstated. you know what are the implications if a third of these job losses, give or take, are more structural in nature or at least potentially more lasting what What should governments be doing to try and mitigate that? Are we talking? training programs? What do you think would be most effective? Yeah,
3: that's a great question. Um, and it, it sort of speaks to the difficulty which governments have in framing the right policy response. Um, if you've got essentially a demand shock, where the problem for employment is uh, there's not enough spending taking place, then what governments should be doing is very, very aggressively supporting demand, uh, putting more money into people's pockets, paying businesses to keep hold of their workers through the lockdown. Um, If we're actually looking at a significant reallocation shock, painful though it is, um, what's needed is for governments to get out of the way, um, allow a period of higher unemployment, allow some business bankruptcies to take place uh, to speed that reallocation. Um, And in that circumstance, massive support for demand would actually create more problems in the longer term. I mean, my feeling is The complexity is through sequencing. Right now, in the lockdown, clearly the supply and demand shock is dominating, and that's the period for massive government support. Once the lockdown starts to ease, we'll get a clearer picture of the size of the reallocation shock uh, and where it's particularly important. And that is when governments are going to have to start uh, being a bit more nuanced and differentiating a bit more in terms of where they provide support and where they step out of the way.
1: And that difference is exactly the contrast that Jason Furman drew between Europe and the US last week. And I think we're seeing it play out in real time and we are, as you say, only just beginning to find out which might be more effective. But Tom, thanks very much.
3: Thanks for having me on, Stephanie. Please don't reallocate me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is turning the global economy upside down. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Mike Sasso, Sejal Kishan, Tom Orlick, Bjorn van Roy, and Scott Johnson. Lucy Meakin is the acting executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.